This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Friday, July 15th, 2022. I'm Caleb Brown. The Supreme Court handled and notably chose not to take many cases involving accountability for the criminal justice system. Cato's Jay Schweikert and Clark Neely sum up the most recent term at the high court. We spoke earlier uh, in the Supreme Court term about at least one case that had implications for criminal justice. Uh, Now that the term is over, what can we say with confidence about this Supreme Court term with respect to accountability for police? So overall, uh, this is a pretty discouraging term in terms of police accountability. Um, there are really uh, three major cases that the court decided involving police accountability, and then a set of cases that they didn't decide uh, involving qualified immunity, which is obviously a huge central component of the police accountability problem. Uh, out of all of those, there was really only one case that could be plausibly called a win for the ability of citizens to vindicate their uh, rights against police officers who violate them. All right. So uh, let's take those in turn. The one that we had discussed previously. Right. The one that we discussed previously is a case called Thompson versus Clark, uh, which involves what are called malicious prosecution claims under Section 1983. Uh, in other words, when police officers Uh, unlawfully arrest someone without probable cause and then subject them to criminal proceedings. Um, And that involves the sort of technical question of to bring a successful malicious prosecution claim, your prosecution has to end with a favorable termination. But the question the court faced was, does that mean simply it ends without a conviction or do you need some affirmative indication of innocence like an acquittal? And what the court held in a 6-3 opinion by Justice Kavanaugh was you simply need it to end without a conviction, which means it's much easier to bring malicious prosecution claims because, uh, you know, of course, the most outrageously unlawful arrests probably aren't going to go to trial anyway because the prosecutor is going to realize that it's unlawful. So this preserves the ability to bring malicious prosecution claims, although even in those cases, police will still be able to invoke the defense of qualified immunity. And indeed, in the opinion, uh, in Thompson versus Clark, they specifically note that on remand, the court will have to consider the question of qualified immunity. So it's a victory, but a narrow one. All right. So and the other two cases? Uh, So the other two major cases are Egbert versus Buell, um, which involves the Bivens Doctrine, and um, Vega versus Taco, which involves uh, Miranda. Um, so to start with Egbert versus Buell, this was really probably the highest profile accountability case of the term. Um, so this involves the Bivens doctrine, which is sort of like the section 1983 for federal officials. In the Bivens case, the court held that even though there's no statute that specifically authorizes you to sue federal officials who violate your rights, that cause of action is implicit in the constitution. However, in the decades since Bivens, the court has significantly cut back on the scope of that remedy and has pretty much all but limited it to its facts. Uh, And in this particular case, it involved a Customs and Border Patrol agent who unlawfully broke into or or entered a man's house without a a warrant, entered his property without a warrant and assaulted him. Uh, And the man tried to bring a Bivens claim against him. And the court said, well, this is sort of a new context because it tangentially is related to immigration proceedings, and this occurred near the border. Um, Therefore, we're not going to recognize a Bivens claim in this case because it's slightly different than prior cases. 
Um, and that was a 6-3 decision with the traditional conservatives in the majority. Uh, and the dissent basically said, you know, look, even if you want to limit Bivens to its scope, this is just a plain old vanilla Fourth Amendment claim, just like Bivens itself. The fact that it takes place near the border shouldn't be a reason to deny the claim. So it's actually a little bit similar to the qualified immunity issue where to bring a successful Bivens actions now, you really need a prior case that is factually almost on point with something like Bivens itself or the few other cases where the courts recognized it. So it's very hard to bring that remedy now. So uh, it, help, help me understand Bivens a little better, uh, at least as the Supreme Court has interpreted it. It seems like it's not enough that uh, the behavior of the police in question is worse. It, it doesn't seem particularly relevant. That's right. It really has nothing to do with how you know significant or, or serious the misconduct was. And here it was pretty obvious misconduct. Now, I mean, in, in fairness, there are arguments you know, that the court got it wrong in Bivens, that they were basically creating a cause of action that didn't exist before. Um, I think that it's a complicated issue, but there are reasonable arguments there. And so in a way, I'm sympathetic to the court trying to get it right in terms of not usurping Congress's role in defining causes of action. However, I think it's pretty rich, you know, to put it politely, that the court is so interested in trying to get Bivens right, but aside from Justice Thomas, shows absolutely no interest in trying to correct the much more obvious usurpation of Congress's role, which is the court's creation of qualified immunity. So if you're going to try to be consistent and get it right, you should at least do it both ways. All right. And this, the, the last case here that was uh, another, yet another disappointment. Yeah, this is a, a curious case because I think both the majority and the dissent kind of missed the mark on how to analyze the case. Um, so this is a case, Vega versus Taco, which involved um, the Miranda rules, which as most people probably know are the rules where police have to give you certain warnings uh, about your rights to remain silent and your right to an attorney. Um, before they ask you questions in an interrogative setting. And if they fail to follow those rules, then generally speaking, any statements you make there can't be admitted against you at trial. So what happened here is an officer, um, you know, was alleged to have uh, interrogated a man in a custodial setting um, without giving him his warnings, um, but then lied to both the prosecutor and the court about the nature of the setting, basically saying, oh, it wasn't actually an interrogation. He just gave this up freely. And that caused the statements to be admitted against him at trial. The jury acquitted him. And then he brought a Section 1983 claim against this officer saying, you know, your conduct here caused this statement to be unlawfully admitted against me at trial. The way that the court assessed the question was basically treating it as this kind of theoretical, what is the nature of Miranda? So the majority's position was, you know, Miranda rules are just prophylactic rules. They're not constitutional rules in and of themselves. So the mere failure to follow Miranda isn't itself actionable under Section 1983. Um, and the dissent written by Justice Kagan said, no, 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 like these have to be constitutional rules because we previously held in a case called Dickerson that Congress cannot legislatively overrule Miranda. So they must be constitutional rules. And I think that that whole framework is kind of interesting philosophically, but it really kind of misses the mark because the underlying question for Section 1983 is whether this person 
caused the constitutional violation. And there's really no dispute that a violation does occur when a statement is unlawfully admitted against someone at trial, which happened here. Now, most of the time, the mere failure to follow Miranda rules, in other words, taking a statement without Mirandizing someone, you know, is not going to be the cause of the violation at trial. But the argument here was that because this officer lied about the circumstances of the interrogation with the foreseeable and intended result of getting the statement unlawfully admitted against him at trial, that he was the cause of the violation. So it's in my view, the case was really more about how to construe the causation element of Section 1983, and it didn't really need to be this giant referendum on Miranda. But neither the majority nor the dissent really focused on that. Um, so it actually, you know, kind of seemed like a little bit of a sloppy opinion to me um, for not really engaging with the core argument that he was making before the court. So is it fair to say that this narrows Miranda? It makes it much harder to redress violations of Miranda. I mean, it doesn't change the substantive rules about what police have to do in Miranda settings, but it does mean that even in cases of egregious violations where someone not only fails to give the warnings, but then lies about that very failure in, in an attempt to, you know, essentially cause a constitutional violation, that can't be redressed, which, you know, of course, is going to have the probable result of making, you know, police more willing to violate the Miranda rules. Clark, so Jay's walked us through some of the cases that the Supreme Court did hear. Uh, what about the cases that they chose not to? Two of the cases that are most notable that the Supreme Court decided not to hear this term were a pair of qualified immunity cases out of Texas. Both of them decided in favor of the def government defendants uh, by the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals, which unfortunately has a pretty horrible track record when it comes to qualified immunity. The first case was called Ramirez, and it involved this particularly horrific incident where man was having a mental health episode and had splashed some gasoline on himself in his own home. His wife called the police. Um, they showed up, three officers, and uh, one of them went to deploy his taser, and the other one said, no, 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 we've been trained that you don't use a taser against somebody who's got a flammable liquid on them because there's a very good chance you'll set them on fire and burn them to death. Whereupon, not just one, but two officers then actually deployed their tasers, lit the man on fire, and burned him to death in front of his wife and child. So in other words, um, in order to try to avoid the worst result that could happen, which is him lighting himself on fire, they lit him on fire. And the Fifth Circuit granted qualified immunity in that case and held that it wasn't even um, a Fourth Amendment violation. It wasn't even excessive force um, to light the man on fire the way they did. The Supreme Court in the face of a very strong cert petition by our friend Kate Stetson, whom we work with on our um, cross-jurisdictional or cross-ideological um, amicus brief, Supreme Court denied cert on that case, as it did in um, another um, uh, Texas case involving a prisoner who was taken into a jail. He was uh, he was avowedly suicidal. He warned them that he was suicidal. So they did two things you never do under those circumstances. They isolated him by putting him in a cell by himself. And the cell contained um, an obvious ligature. That means something with which he could uh, hang himself. It was a, um, a telephone cord with like a 36-inch long cord. He wrapped it around his neck, um, strangled himself right in front of a jailer who then stared at him and failed to call 911 uh, while this was going on. Another very powerful uh, case, one would think, uh, for, for, for liability here. But the Fifth Circuit, again, 
uh, granted qualified immunity and essentially said, well, you know, the previous case we had that was like this involved a bed sheet and not a telephone cord. So they couldn't have known they were not, this was not clearly established. They weren't on notice. Um, very disappointing denials of qualified immunity in both cases. And unfortunately, a fairly clear signal from the U.S. Supreme Court that it's really not interested in uh, going back and cleaning up the mess that it made by inventing out of whole cloth uh, this defense of qualified immunity that enables rights violating police and other government officials to escape uh, liability for their misconduct. Um, and it sort of reaffirms that probably, you know, if this, if this is going to be cleaned up, it'll have to be done either by Congress or state by state. So Justice Sotomayor, do I understand that correctly? She had uh, a problem with uh, not taking uh, either of these cases? Yeah, she wrote a dissent in both cases, um, and in the, um, the 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 Ramirez case involving the uh, the, the taser um, was actually joined uh, by Kagan and Breyer. They did not join the uh, uh, the jail suicide case. We don't know why, but in both cases, Justice uh, Sotomayor said that she would have summarily reversed uh, the Fifth Circuit uh, because of the uh, basically the overly expansive application of qualified immunity uh, in both cases. Um, she felt that it was uh, clear um, that the misconduct that was described and alleged in those cases would have put any reasonable government official on notice uh, that what happened in each of those cases uh, was clearly improper, clearly a rights violation and something that would give rise uh, to liability. Obviously, we agree with that um, uh, here at Cato, but uh, the the court, the Supreme Court, uh, has continues to take a, a vastly overly kind of expansive view of qualified immunity in a way that really continues to prop up what we've described as our near zero accountability uh, policy for law enforcement. And at least as a, at the Supreme Court level, it, it appears that that policy is going to continue uh, much to the uh, um, detriment uh, of, of our ability to vindicate our constitutional rights when interacting with government officials. And just to add one brief thing to that, I mean, it's it's interesting because I obviously very much appreciate Justice Sotomayor writing separately in these cases and bringing attention to them and sort of, you know, explaining why this was these were sort of preposterous outcomes. On the other hand, though, I, I will admit that I find it a little bit frustrating that neither she nor any of the other, you know, so-called liberal justices have indicated interest in reconsidering qualified immunity itself. And you know, there's a point like and Justice Sotomayor has done this a lot where she said, well, I think the lower court got it wrong on how they were applying qualified immunity. But if you end up saying that enough times, maybe you, you know, end up concluding actually that is the way qualified immunity is applied. So if you don't like that kind of, well, there's a minor factual distinction, so no, you know, so qualified immunity, that's probably a sign that the doctrine itself needs to be reconsidered. And and um I find it unfortunate that it remains the case that Justice Thomas is the only justice who has explicitly uh, said the court should should reconsider the doctrine itself. Um, and I wish we could get a little bit more of a consensus amongst at least some of the justices that that's necessary at this point. What's working its way through the courts right now? In terms of qualified immunity, um, not anything. I mean, there obviously there's a lot of qualified immunity litigation in the lower courts sort of fighting out cases on the margins. But I think I mean, realistically, I don't think the court could give us any clearer sign that it's just not interested in fundamentally reconsidering the doctrines. So the hope, like Clark said, the hope at this point is is from legislatures. So to the extent that Congress or state legislatures are in the driver's seat on police accountability, 
we have a couple of states in New York City that have uh, made efforts toward uh, reducing the protections or eliminating the protections of qualified immunity, at least for state courts. Um, is there any movement that you've seen in any other states? There's been a lot of movement and there's been a lot of activity and discussion. Um, but I, but there have, I don't, I mean, there have not been other states that have passed major reforms. And I mean, realistically, I don't think, you know, we're going to see that in the immediate future. I mean, we are in, I think, a tough moment um, for criminal justice reform generally and for policing reform in particular um, because of sort of the widespread perception that, you know, police are under attack and, you know, crime rates are rising. And I mean, it's, you know, I, I think that there's some misunderstanding about some of the details there. But I mean, it is true that, uh, you know, certain you know, aspects of the crime rate have been rising. And that's made people, unfortunately, a little bit more sensitive about trying to revisit criminal justice reform. Um, I think that there are a lot of, you know, policymakers on both sides of the aisle who recognize that this doctrine is absurd and not working in any sensible way, but feel a little bit, you know, boxed in on what they can do about it right now. So I think we're really kind of in a reformulating the strategy phase of things. Um, I think it's essential that, you know, uh, the reformers in this in this area approach qualified immunity as a broader issue than just policing, because I think although that's probably, you know, that's why the issue came to prominence in 2020, it is now much harder to proceed as a as a policing only issue because, you know, law enforcement can ask somewhat reasonably, look, if this is good enough for us, why isn't it good enough? In other words, if getting rid of qualified immunity makes sense for us, why not for everyone else in government. And, you know, my response to that is, yeah, it's a good point. We should do it across the board. Uh, so I think that that is, you know, not only the better policy outcome, but I think at this point in time, probably the more politically palatable outcome. Jay Schweikert is a research fellow at the Cato Institute. Clark Neely is Senior Vice President for Legal Affairs at Cato. Subscribe and give a rating to the Cato Daily Podcast on your podcast platform of choice and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast. 